World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash HRN today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm Mihosaki Kotayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Sylvan Mishima Brackett, who is a chef and owner of Izakaya Rintaro in San Francisco's Mission District. Shortly after he opened the restaurant in 2014, Rintaro was included in Bon Appetit magazine's top 10 new restaurant list, and it has been beloved by many diners for the last eight years. Born and raised, uh, no, actually born in Kyoto, Japan, and grew up in California, Sylvan has a unique and a beautifully balanced approach to Japanese food culture. He also worked for the iconic American chef, Alice Waters, for many years, uh, who has deeply influenced his view to food. So today we'll discuss why the son of Japanese temple carpenter decided to become a chef, uh, Sylvan's apprenticeship at traditional Japanese restaurants in Japan, how he integrated Japanese and American food cultures at his restaurant, Wintaro, his favorite Japanese kitchen equipment, and much, much more. But before we start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And just one more thing. We are running a business membership drive right now. Heritage Radio Network, or HRN's business membership drive, that is. And we all know that small businesses keep our communities vibrant. For $500, HRN will shine a light on your work and help sustain a mission to expand the way people think about food. And this fundraiser will support not just my show, but the amazing HRN community of food podcasts. 
As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive online mentions, social media posts, listings on my website, and more. So if you're interested, please go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz, that's B-I-Z, to become a business member today. So it's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Thank you so much. Now, let's start a conversation. Is Sylvan Mishma Brackett. Hello, Sylvan. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for having me. So this is exciting. Um, I read about an article about you for many years ago, and I was always uh, hoping to have you on the show. So my dream came today. I'm so, so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so you have a um, very interesting background. And to get to know you first, where are you from? And what did you eat when you grew up? So I was born in Kyoto, and when I was eight, eight months old, um, my parents, my mother's Japanese, my father's American, moved to the United States, and um, they bought land way out in the country, um, in Northern California, a very, very rural area. Um, they actually had to, to clear the trees to make the place to build the house. There was no electricity or water or any utilities at, at all, and so I grew up very far out, um, probably 30 or 40 miles from the closest small town in a place called Nevada City. Um, and uh, eating, I, I, I ate uh, quite a bit of Japanese food, of course. Um, my mother had a garden, so I spent you know, a lot of time as a kid you know, helping pick peas and pull carrots, and um, I had kind of a chance to see how food is grown. Mm, right. So that's the classic, the best part of uh, Northern Californian climate and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I, I'm really curious. So I heard that your father uh, is a temple carpenter, which is very unusual. And I, I think inevitably you got influenced by him because your restaurant uh, is also uh, helped built by him. And you? Yes, yes, yes. Right. So he, he, um, he studied as a temple carpenter's apprentice for six years. Um, uh, started when he was in his early 20s and a pretty uh, intense apprenticeship, you know, working, you know, we say 100 hours a week and uh, very little money and very little sleep and a lot of work and uh, mm. pretty demanding. And you got to work on a lot of National treasure buildings, so like Kiyomizudera Temple and Sanji Sangendo and other kind of famous temples and shrines around Japan. Oh wow! Do you know how he got into that area? <laughs> um, I think that he he was young and he was traveling through Japan. My um, my aunt was living there at, at the time, so he went to visit her, and he was interested in Buddhism. So he was sitting zazen um, meditation. Um, at um, a pretty well-known temple called Daitokuji. And his kind of teacher at the temple was uh, a roshi named Kobori Roshi, who um, was a pretty influential guy. My father had no idea. And he kind of offhandedly mentioned that he was really interested in the architecture. And Kobori Roshi uh, said that he would be willing to introduce him to one of the top temple carpentry uh, companies in Japan. If, uh, but if he did, he would have to commit uh, at least five years to do the work. Um, mm. So he decided to do it. Wow. 
<laughs> That's amazing, yep. right? Um, yeah. So okay. So then, how did you get into cooking? That's kind of like you could have pursued the same kind of path, but you chose cooking. Yeah, um, my, my father was never very uh, intense about having me take over his business. I mean, his his father had worked for Pillsbury Mills um, in Minnesota, and um, I'd never particularly liked his job. He was the head of purchasing, so he used to buy literally millions of eggs at a time. Um, but my father always talked to me about how my grandfather, um, he retired and then he, 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 he died shortly afterwards, um, never really getting to do the thing he wanted to do. So my father was always pretty insistent that I follow the path of what is most interesting to me. And it was food. So I, I, as a little kid, loved to eat, and I still do. Um, and um, at a certain point, it kind of dawned on me that you could make a living through cooking. Um, and so I started first by making uh, pastries, because I was really interested in sweets and desserts. Um, and then in high school, I, for my senior project, I opened a little restaurant at my high school, cooking <laughs> whatever I could cook. Uh, kind of a little pop-up, I guess, is what we call them now, um, uh, selling. You know, it was a very random collection. It was uh, curry rice, uh, Japanese curry rice, and uh, pizza, and spaghetti with fresh noodles. I mean, it was all, you know, not very good, but um, <laughs> it was my first experience cooking for money. Mm, right, and managing uh, the yes. pop-up. Exactly. Right. Mm. So, but I think, um, I, I would imagine if you didn't grow up in such a beautiful, you know, agriculturally advanced area, meaning like more autismal, sustainable minded area, uh, probably you didn't get interested in cooking like, like that. Is that what you think? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that it wasn't until I got to Chez Panisse, um, that my eyes are really open to agriculture in that way. I mean, the kind of the garden my mother had was a small garden. We got most of our produce and vegetables and things came from the local supermarket. Um, so I didn't think much too much about organic stuff. I think my, my parents were buying organic produce when possible. And of course, my mother's garden was organic. Um, but it wasn't until it got to Chez Panisse that I started to really, really pay attention to it and mm. make the connection flavor and, and the way things are grown. Right. So let's talk about it. So you worked for eight years as Alice Waters assistant, as well as Japanese creative director. Mm -hmm. So for listeners who are not familiar with Alice Waters, she's an American chef, restaurateur, and author. And in 1971, she opened uh, the iconic Japanese in Buckley, California, and it spearheaded the farm-to-table movement. So he, she's really a big deal, um, and she's still keep going. So so how did you get the job that allowed you to work so closely with that chef, famous Alice Waters? Um, I, I was, um, let's see here, I, I left Portland where I went to college and came to the Bay Area. I was living in San Francisco, and um, a family friend was working in her office um, and needed help with, data entry or something. I think it was on, uh, working on putting phone numbers into her famous black book, which has every phone number of every person you've ever heard of. Um, and uh, it was around the time of the 30th anniversary of Chez Panisse, and it was going to be a huge event. And uh, 
turns out they needed help. So I, I stuck. I, I hit it off with Alice, and she grew to trust me, and I was there for a long time. Mm, right. So what kind of job was that? You also did a you know, creative job for the restaurant, too. Yeah, so the, for most of the time, I mean, my, my job kind of shifted. I, I was... She had a couple of assistants at the time, so I was first the second assistant and then her primary assistant. But, um, you know, it wasn't in the kitchen. It was, um, you know, the less exciting stuff, scheduling and um, handling press inquiries. Um, We also, at that time, she was working really closely with Slow Food. So uh, there were these big events in Italy that I helped organize, you know, one amazing event farmers from all over the world uh, um, to Turin uh, for this big event called Terra Madre. So I helped you know, coordinate all of the Japanese network of farmers, or many of them at least, to get flights and help with hotels and get them all set up. She was working with the Prince of Wales on a project. She was working with Yale. Uh, sustainable food project there. So she just had her fingers in every pot and mm. helped kind of coordinate all of these zillions of projects. It was, for me, amazing. I, I um, you know, I grew up in a really rural situation. And although I wasn't a total country boy, I'd spent quite a bit of time in Kyoto and um, came to San Francisco quite often as a kid. I definitely didn't have the kind of uh, access to the whole food world. Suddenly, plunked in the middle of it. It was amazing. Mm, right, like really in the middle, like at the center yeah. of the world, almost. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. So, um, what did you learn from Alice Waters? I'm sure there are millions, but you have to narrow it down to a few or just one. And uh, how has it influenced you? Oh, God, it's so hard to say. I mean, <laughs> I started, I was 24, 25, and I left when I was early 30s. So, I say? Um, I mean, they're the obvious things. Like, you know, if you're paying attention to where your food, how your food is grown and who's growing it. I mean, there's all sorts of amazing things, of course. You, um, she always talked about how um, she started off looking for flavor and then ended up uh, realizing that kind of organic and sustainable methods um, were the way to that. Um, so it's not just kind of a virtuous thing about supporting these people who are, you know, making sure the soil health is good and kind of doing regenerative farming. It's um, it's also about the, the flavor. I think also there's a kind of um, similarity in the way that she thinks about food and kind of a traditional Japanese mentality, which is very much based on the flavor of the thing in itself and um, very clear um, deep strong flavors that are complicated overly complicated so I, I think that that definitely influenced me and then there's all mm. sorts of other you know ways of treating your employees I mean she had a restaurant where everybody had health insurance and still does um, she instituted a service charge way before anybody else was so that um, the front of house and the kitchen could be paid equitably. Um, she thought about giving people vacation time and 
making restaurant work work that can be sustainable, not just environmentally, but just operating at your staff. Um, she threw fabulous staff parties. Um, and, you know, also, you know, realizing that in order to pay for all of this, you have to have a business that works and that makes money. Um, and so not shying away from the fact that in order to support all of these people and support all these farmers, you have to have a business that takes care of the customers, that creates a feeling and an ambiance. And she's always been very clear about her vision of what she wants the restaurant to be um, mm. and the kind of feeling that she wants to uh, uh, kind of convey in the dining room. Right. Um, I always stuck to that. Right. So it sounds like uh, she's spearheaded everything's happening now, like, uh, you know, Blue Hillstone Barnes, Dunbarber's philosophy of uh, chefs do not direct the cuisine, the nature does, and also uh, Danny Meyers, uh, the employee comes first to serve the best uh, way for your customers. So she really did um, start everything. And an uh, interesting point that you made, you know, the the something common between Japanese and Alice Waters philosophy uh, of cooking, I think both direct uh, or directed by nature, right? Seasonality. So mm -hmm. we are kind of following the direction by nature, not the other way around. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, seeing, uh, I mean, I, I think that kind of local seasonal has become such a common idea um, and that it can be, feel a little dull um, now. Um, but I, to put your kind of mind back to, you know, even the early 2000s when I started, you know, every small town did not have a farmer's market. Um, you know, most restaurants were buying through vegetable distributors. Um, when I first started at Chez Panisse, we'd occasionally go to the farmer's market and there were not a lot of chefs that were buying. If you go to the farmer's markets now in the Bay Area, um, mm. you know, some are just basically chef's markets where it's almost all chefs purchasing. But it was a much different time. It was quite revolutionary uh, in a way. Right. And she created a revolution uh, for all the other regions in the U.S. So, yeah, this, I really feel always grateful whenever I see <laughs> Farmer's Market in Union Square in New York, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, and then I heard about that you worked for Alice Waters and then you went back to Japan to train as a chef. So why did you decide to do so? Um, so I, I've been cooking Japanese food all through um, my time working in Japanese and before. Um, my mother and I uh, cooked a lot and she showed me lots of things and I had lots of books and was very interested. But I, I was interested in the idea of opening an izakaya, which at the time there were maybe a couple in New York and maybe one in L.A., but nothing in the Bay Area. And I, um, I think probably rubbing off from my father felt like this understanding that I really needed to, to train properly and spend some time in Japan and uh, figure out how to do it right. So I did. I went to Japan. Right. So when and how long did you work in Japan to oh, train geez. yourself? Um, I think it was 2007. I bought a one-way ticket to uh, Tokyo and um, I went to see my family and my aunt and my uncle live in Japan. So my grandmother was alive at that time. And then 
I went and visited my friend Natsi Hachisu, who uh, uh, is uh, now she's a fairly known Japanese. Uh, she's American. But she's written a number of really great Japanese cookbooks. Um, and she was yeah. living with a farmer uh, in a, a farming community in Saitama, north of Tokyo. And uh, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I needed to find a place to work. So she connected me with a friend of hers, um, Kanji Nakatani, who has a restaurant called Soba Ro, and also a second one actually called Soba Ra. And at that time it was Ro. And um, he agreed that I could come and, and work with him a few days, I think it was three days a week. And I was there for six months or so. And then the other couple, few days a week, I went back to uh, Tokyo and I worked in another restaurant, a Ryote, which is a much kind of fancier, more elevated um, and detailed sort of cooking um, at a place called Miyashita in Aoyama. Mm. So these oh, are wow. very, very different experiences. Aoyama being kind of like a fashion district in Tokyo, very urban, very sophisticated. And the restaurant, Sobaro, is literally surrounded by rice paddies. So mm. two, two totally different experiences. And it was exhausting because I would didn't have any money, so I'd take the slow train, Hachikosen. Um, it was a like three-hour three trip. Um, and I would, I would work in Aoyama a few days and then take the train out to Saitama and work there and have a day off uh, once a week. So I mm. did that for six months. But I was recently married, so I couldn't spend um, um, forever there. So I came back to America and uh, started a catering company. Peco Peco, and we did, you know, parties and went to all sorts of things. And and then every year, once or twice a year, I'd go back and work with Kanchi-san um, for a month or two. Mm. So work with right. them over the course of a long time. So you, um, I would imagine you really acquired the basics of both kind of, kind of like a soba and more casual version restaurant experience, as well as the most formal, which is day style. Yeah. Like a kaiseki and a very super formal Madaiko's dinner um, service. Um, so, so other than actual culinary um, refinement you had, what what is special about Japanese culture and Japanese food culture to you personally after spending time there as an adult? Um, it's kind of a big question, but um, I mean try to explain to people that you think of Japan as maybe the size of California with half the population of the United States for uh, 2,000 years and then you see what you get. And uh, basically anything that Japanese culture has touched in the traditional crafts has been elevated, like simplified and elevated at the same time. So with uh, kampo carpentry or carpentry generally, um, even just the tools, uh, for instance, a hand plane used to plain wood is so such a simple device it's a block of wood with a blade that sticks out of it um, but it's been refined to this unbelievable level um, so you can plane a piece of wood and get a shaving which is like a hundredth the thickness of a piece of paper and make the wood like glass smooth um, and to get to that place it takes so much kind of refinement and sophistication um, 
And I think that there are so many things like that in Japanese culture, which, you know, encompass every realm, um, which uh, I wanted to kind of show to my American friends uh, yeah, through food. Mm, right. Yeah, I think uh, there's a foundational difference in American mindset, right? Because everything new, powerful, and energy versus in Japan, it's such a small country and you have to preserve. You don't have much uh, resources. So it's almost like a wabi-sabi mindset, which is admire old things and mm -hmm. you try to conserve, preserve everything. Because once we decided it, it's going to be valuable. So we spend all of our life and tension to make it that way. So that's a very different mindset. So I think it's uh, your father really captured that one even more than anybody else at his kind of experience you can yeah. as an American person. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll discuss uh, how... Um, the Sylvan beautifully emerges Japanese and California food cultures at Rintaro. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverages Bento Box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. Visit getbento.com slash HRN today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotayama, and my guest today is Sylvan Mishima Brackett, who is the chef and owner of Izakaya Rintaro in San Francisco's Mission District. Okay, so let's talk about your restaurant, Izakaya Rintaro, which you opened in 2014, and it remains very popular and cherished by many diners. So what is the concept of Izakaya Rintaro? Oh, um, let's see here. Um, I, I think it's a way for me to bring parts, all, a lot of parts of my, of my upbringing and my life all together. So, of course, my grew up in a traditional Japanese house that my, my dad built. Um, so I wanted him to build the space for us. So it's, um, you can envision a fairly long, narrow space with an open beam structure and uh, a lot of um, uh, hand planed woods. And uh, the mud wall is made out of the dirt from where I grew up in the country, uh, a traditional plaster. Um, I also wanted there to be really good music. I really, really wanted to not have a, a place that felt too serious. I wanted a place that felt like a party. So we have a great stereo system, and really great playlists, and try to keep the energy really high. Um, Food-wise, of course, I wanted to, I think I've said in the past, kind of think of California as though it were a region in Japan. 
um, it's kind of a crazy idea, but to to think about the things we could get in California that are really special and really try to highlight those ingredients. So for the most part, the meats and the fishes and the vegetables all are um, from the West Coast. We uh, get all of our dried goods, our shoyu, uh, soy sauce, and katsu, bushi, and all of the preserved foods from from Japan, um, but for the fresh foods, use some other stuff. Right. So okay. So it sounds like the essence of Japanese culture and Californian flavors are always there, and that's kind of your clue in the kitchen. And you're known for being in the kitchen without leaving. <laughs> you actually really. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm here a lot. Now. Right. So, uh, so why do, what, how did you, um, why did you name your restaurant Rintaro? Uh, Rintaro uh, means, the translation is boy of the woods. And um, it's actually a direct, direct translation of my name, Sylvan. Um, it wasn't ever really a nickname that I had in Japan, but I like the kind of reference to where I grew up. And it was a nickname that was given to me by the head priest at that temple by Kokoshi, so Komoriyoshi, spoke English. And so when he heard my name, he knew that the translation was Rintaro. I also kind of like the, all the Taro names have a uh, kind of old fashioned feel to them, which I like. So uh, that's why I named Rintaro. I, I really found it very cool. And mm-hmm. I, I didn't know the Daidoguji's head yeah. <laughs> name, the name. That's the yeah. coolest, yeah, most important name. Okay. Um, so based on your unique background and experience, so what is your philosophy of cooking? And in other words, what, what is always in your mind when you cook or think of cooking? I think it's really important to me to um, have really clear flavors. Um, so... Right now, for instance, we're making um, uh, a a clear soup. On Mondays, we do a kind of a special, more formal course meal. Um, and one of the courses is a suimono, so it's clear broth, katsubushi broth. So we get really nice katsubushi uh, direct from the maker in Kagoshima. I visited him a few times. He ships directly to us. And we have a shaver, and we shave it to make really fragrant, uh, deep flavored gashi. And then um, it will be with a lingkhad fish cake, and then uh, some sweet peas. And these sweet peas, the sugar sand peas, are just come in season here. So to um, blanch them perfectly, and we're going to take the peas out and slice the husks very into little thin slivers. So when you eat it, it should be a really bright taste of the pea and the kind of depth of the dashi and the clear, uh, kind of salty fish of the chinjo, uh, the, the fish cake. Mm. So I mean, it's, 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 and it's only, what is that? Three, basically three ingredients. So I want every, everything on the plate or in the bowl to be very, deep and flavorful and have a lot of guts. Mm, right. So the people say uh, the Japanese cuisine is uh, the cuisine of reduction versus French is addition. The kind of uh, so, classic saying probably applies to 
um, downloaded it into your kitchen. So,、um, yeah, and then how do you call your food? And, I mean, what, what do you call your Lintaro's cooking as a traditional or slightly creative, or what's the range of it?、Um, I, fairly traditional, I'd say. I mean, I, I think I, when I first started, I felt very,、um, not hemmed in, but felt like a lot of heavy weight to do things always extremely traditionally. And I think I've loosened up over the years as I've gotten better. Um, and I kind of trust my own taste and、um, allow myself to think creatively about you know, putting together flavors that might not be hyper traditional.、Um, mm. Yeah, I, I was looking at、uh, one of the items on your menu is the kamatama udon. So, Rintaro, hand rolled udon and carbonara with a raw egg yolk, butter, ginger, scallion, and a freshly shaved katsuobushi. It's like you can't go wrong with this. I really、yeah. wish I could just have it right now. So, yeah, it's kind of a Japanese、uh, yoshoku style of、right. how you merge Western flavors like butter naturally into Japanese traditional context. Right, right. I think that's a good example. I mean, it's、um, something that we used to make at the end of the night for the staff、um, mm. uh, with the leftover udon. And we make udon here every day. So it's udon that we make is、uh, very chewy. So it's like sudosudo koshikaru. It's、uh, slippery on the outside and kind of soft on the outside and very chewy on the inside.、Um, and、um, yeah, the idea was first, I was. I had kamatama udon, and that's traditionally made by taking udon noodles out of the hot water、um, right after they're boiled. Rather than washing them, which firms them up, you put it into a bowl and crack an egg over it and add some soy sauce and maybe ginger.、Um, but I was thinking about how to refine it a little bit and how to,、um, uh, to keep that great texture. So we pull the udon out. And then we wash it, which really firms it up, and then heat it up again in the boiling water,、um, drain it, and then add the butter, which kind of adds a lot of delicious richness. And then、uh, udon kaishi. Udon kaishi is a seasoning base made with、uh, soy sauce and mirin and、uh, katsubushi. And then more shaped katsubushi, and then the egg yolk rather than the whole egg.、Um, so it's a little bit kind of concentrated and rich. Right. So it sounds ostensibly simple, but there's so much going on in the bowl. Right. Yeah. It's just, if you don't have good udon, it kind of doesn't work very well. Right. Okay. And、uh, also, you have a yose tofu. You have house made silken tofu. Obviously, you make tofu,、mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, not just udon takes a long time. You have to make a good udon. You have to really know what to do. So it's very impressive. And uh, so, um, and also, I, I noticed that you use, for, so for example, kabocha croquette.、Um, you have、uh, you have potato croquettes with fresh acme panko. So,、mm-hmm. acme is San Francisco's uh, proud uh, bakery, right? Yes. So, it's kind of very local, but very traditional Japanese too. So, I really thought it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. So that, I, that bread, I, I spent a while trying to find the right kind of bread,、uh, kind of like the milk bread in Japan, which was used to make great fresh pokong. And、uh, 
they have a loaf called the pen to meat, which is just that. It's a milk and eggs and a little butter in it. It's very soft um, and makes wonderful pancake. Makes, right. makes all of the pancake things especially uh, special, crunchy. Right. Okay. Yeah. If you go to the supermarket, it's, it's they sell panko, but it's not anything like real good panko. So yeah, I I'm sure it's amazing. And yeah, Agni, uh, it's interesting, right? It's as people think of very Western kind of bakery, but they they really are flexible to make that kind of good quality. Right. Do you do you make kampo panko by yourself, or like uh, they uh, you ask them to do it? Uh, no, we buy the loaves from them, and then we. Uh, trim the crusts and make panko. We've actually, one thing that's been bothering me for years is that we throw away these huge bags of crusts, tried many things, uh, use them up, but I haven't really come up with anything good. So it makes beautiful compost. Okay. And so, and you have a deep understanding of Japanese food and great ingredients of California. So how do you merge um, Japanese food culture, your upbringing in America and amazing ingredients in California? I mean, it could be how you come up with the recipes or how you run restaurants or any, any comments on that? Um, for emerging Japanese food culture, I think the biggest thing for me is to really try to instill in the cooks that there's depth in almost everything. Um, so, you know, the person who makes the tofu for them to really understand that there's a lot of subtlety in making the tofu. It's not just you follow a recipe do once and you've got it. Or even when you're frying, uh, you know, uh, tonkatsu or chicken katsu, it's, it's to fry it really, really well takes a lot of focus and um, attention. So there are a few things, you know, cutting scallions, for instance. Um, I don't think that I realized how specific it was until I started training people on how to do it and how your knife has to be a razor sharp and how you know, each scallion needs to be cut razor thin, and then you have to wash them very well and dry them very well, and you end up with something which is great. Um, and kind of trying to instill that idea that you don't take so long time to get good at something. Mm. And I think that with younger cooks, there's a sense that you know you make something once and you're a master of it. For instance, I've been making rolling udon since 2007 and I, I'm still learning how to make it better. Mm, right. That's what all masters say, right? You are yeah. forever students. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's not easy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. I'm mean, curious that, you know, if you don't uh, dry the scallions well and then your knife is not sharp enough, does you going to waste the kind of a juice in the vegetable? Or is that... Yeah, I mean, what happens, you just you end up crushing them. Um, and they, after you wash them, they're just kind of like uh, mushy. Um, if you've got a very sharp knife, it'll cut right through it, kind of at a cellular level, and you won't have, it won't, it won't crush them. And then when you wash them, they'll be really like light and kind of stick together in a little pile in a way. Right. Um, All right. So, I'll sharpen my knife today for yeah, my skeleton. Um, and um, I heard that you love using traditional Japanese cooking equipment and utensils. So what are some of your favorites? Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'll, 
I'm working on a cookbook actually and, and starting to test recipes for that and realizing, for instance, grating daikon, you really need to have a, a daikon grater. Um, like a box grater doesn't really work very well. So it's a, kind of a square-shaped thing with teeth that stick out of it. Um, rough side for daikon and the fine side for ginger. Um, we get fresh wasabi from an amazing farm called Half Moon Bay Wasabi down south of San Francisco, and they deliver once a week. And uh, we use a shark skin grater. So it's shark skin laminated to a piece of wood, and it grates it really, really fine. Um, and you get this wonderful, smooth, uh, kind of almost creamy paste. Right. Um, hey. uh, so, yes. dashimaki tamago, the kind of fancy, uh, famous folded omelet. It really can't be accomplished without a, a good copper, square copper pan. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask you questions? Uh, <laughs> so the um, the grater, the metal grater, what is the difference? Because I have one and I can, I can tell it's juicier and it's finer, right? It's just the mm. whole scrapey, like grainy uh, fiber gets stuck in the metal. Right. And what you get is just a really juicy, flavorful chunk of what you're looking for, like a daikon or a ginger. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, so the other one, um, I think shark skin, I think it's like if you go sit at the sushi counter, a sushi chef will show you how this shark skin can work and it's just magical. There's not, nothing else other than the shark skin. But uh, yeah, and also if you go to, um, you know, Tsukiji market, uh, the market, that's the move to Toyosu, but they, they still have a market and they sell that, the egg uh, omelet pan, the tiny mm -hmm. little pan, which is cute. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I, I've never owned it. Does it work differently? What's the difference to make a good omelet? Um, well, for ours, we've, we've been using ours for years. We have two of them. Um, and I've replaced the handles. We've burned the handles or four handles out. And uh, the ones we have are made of copper, so they distribute the heat very evenly. Um, we've also been using them for such a long time. They're, you know, as nonstick as Teflon, um, which is, of course, very important when you're doing dashimaki, uh, and, uh, of course, the shape, it's square. So if you want a, a rectangular omelet, it helps to have a rectangular pan. Okay, so maybe that's the one I have to purchase next time I go to Japan. Oh, for sure, this yeah. kind of, yeah, it's really so cool. Um, okay, and um, so why do you think Izakaya Rintaro has been so popular since its opening in 2014? Oh God, who knows? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, seriously, restaurants are such a mystery. I mean, we, we had, um, I had built up a, a nice customer base through the catering done a lot of pop-ups and we've gotten a little bit of press um uh, we've had, have had an amazing team both the uh, uh, servers and the kitchen um i think we uh, try to keep it uh light you know like there's a lot i'm talking a lot about kind of the philosophy of what i'm doing but i ideally don't want to beat people over the head of, with that when they come in i want them to have a place where they can relax and have a couple of beers and some sake and eat something delicious. Um, so it's, it's been about making a place that, uh, a space where people want to be as much as. Mm. Right. And I, I saw a picture 
um, it's uh, the decor, of course. It's kind of like a Kyoto Machia kind of feeling. It's very authentic, but casual, open, and just looks very comfortable. So I have, right. oh, yeah, full disclosure, I have never been there. So next time I can travel to San Francisco, Absolutely. I'll definitely be there. So, and uh, so you also have, you mentioned you have a catering company called the Peko Peko, which means hungry in a very cute way. So, so you started the company before you opened Isakaya Rintaro. So, and it's still going, right? So who do you serve and what kind of food do you offer? Well, actually, Peko Peko was folded into the restaurant. So Peko Peko no longer exists except for oh. my um, But we started in 2008. And uh, if you remember, the uh, American economy had a collapse around that time. So my original idea had been to do a lot of you know, caterings and parties. And, um, uh, it didn't work out so well because everyone was afraid of spending money. So... I pretty quickly started to do pop-ups. So I had friends with new restaurants in San Francisco and um, Berkeley, and I would uh, do events in their space. Kind of, um, at this point, I started making good playlists uh, and started to try out recipes. And, and Peck Peck was really a time for me to build the staff, um, try to ad- adapt a lot of the foods that I love in Japan to America. So that means finding the ingredients. So I spent a lot of time um, looking for bamboo shoots and uh, sancho, leaves, ume, Japanese thumbs, and yuzu, and uh, kind of coming up with our sources. Luckily in California, there was a huge migration from Japan at the turn of the century. So there are a lot of Japanese Americans and a lot of Japanese American farmers who provided a lot of fabulous stuff for us. Mm, right. Okay. So, and I, I'm sure you, it's, it's, the name is not Peko Peko, but do you offer catering services if you get a request? Uh, not we used to, but um, since the pandemic, I've just been focusing on the restaurant. So we haven't been able to do much catering recently. Right. Okay. Well, I'll see what happens because New York City is everything's really changing quickly, and as if nothing happened, people started to dine out and yeah, do whatever really they want to do. Really right. So, okay. And since you started Peko Peko in 2008 and opened Izakaya Rintaro in 2014, have you seen any changes in Japanese food culture in the Bay Area? Yeah, it's, it's been pretty amazing, actually. Um, you know, when I first started, very few people that I knew had been to Japan. Uh, I mean, non-Japanese people, of course. Um, and since then, uh, like Tokyo and Kyoto have become this like huge destination for American tourists. So the, the kind of sophistication of the diners has really increased in a kind of an amazing way. And you can kind of even see that with the knives that people, chefs use. Um, a, lot of, a lot of cooks go to Japan. And I would say, whereas when I started, most people were using German knives. Uh, now the bulk of the better chefs are using Japanese knives. Um, so there's just a lot more sophistication around Japanese food. And in the Bay Area, 
since I've opened, um, there have been quite a large number of very, very high-end sushi places have opened. Um, and, uh, say kind of menus, you know, 200, 300, $400 per person sort of places. Um, most of which are bringing fish directly in from a place called Skiji, now it's Toyosu Market. So sadly, not much using local stuff, um, but definitely um, highly trained, pretty sophisticated sushi. Right. Well, it's uh, it's good to have the whole ranges, right, from, you know, um, pretty good supermarket sushi, I can see, and mm-hmm. also um, really like $450 per person kind of place. You have a choice, and I think you really hit the middle perfect point of, yeah, the need for izakaya. And I feel like when looking at your place and pictures and the menu, I wish just like you said tonight, Monday night is a little fancier menu. And, you know, if you want to treat myself, maybe I just stop by tonight. The kind of like really inviting, nice right. um, place. So yeah, congratulations. So uh, what are your plans and dreams? Um, let's see here. I guess when I, I first started Rintaro, I was in my, started thinking about it in my 20s, and I really enjoyed going out and drinking too much and um, eating too much and listening to loud music. And I'm older, and I'm now kind of more interested in maybe a slightly quieter experience. Um, so tonight, for instance, we're, you know, it's called Kapo Rintaro, so it's I wouldn't say it's kaiseki, but it's a lot more refined, controlled uh, course menu. Um, and this kind of cooking for me is very exciting at the moment. Um, so, for instance, I have a little sancho tree here. Sancho is uh, uh, it's related to Szechuan peppercorns. It's um, kind of a numbing spice. And in the spring, it shoots out these little green leaves called kiname, which you can use, which are now getting a little bit too big for us, um, but it has fresh berries. So I just 20 minutes ago harvested all of our sancho berries and boiled them, and I'm going to serve them with um, some of the local black cod, which has been cured miso. Um, I'll grill that over the charcoal. And because it's much fewer people, we can do much more refined cooking with ingredients that are we have less of. So a very small amount of perfect snap peas and a very small amount of sancho. And we have enough to serve just a number of people coming tonight. Mm, so tell us more, a little bit more about the Capo Rintaro so we can discover more. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's six courses. Um, it always starts with the zensai, which is kind of a seasonal plate uh, with between three to five different items. So, for instance, today we'll be making a goma tofu. So it's sesame tofu. So it's actually not tofu at all. It's sesame, really good sesame from a producer called Wadaman. And um, mm. a really nice dashi. And it's thickened with kudzu, which is arrowroot starch. And it sets and it's got a really marvelous, rich texture. And we'll serve that with a little wasabi. And then we're making... Um, Nikogori, which is an aspic with bones from striped bass and a little bit of striped bass and halibut meat in there um, and ginger and red pepper. And then um, 
kind of special today. And, and on couple nights, I, I will buy stuff from Japan in a way I don't usually. So we're going to get the firefly squid, which are now kind of peak season in Japan. So we'll serve that with some komatsura, which is a, kind of related to American spinach, maybe. More like bok choy, maybe. Um, we, from a farmer, Hikari Farm, which we buy it from weekly. Uh, they sent us a big bunch of flowers, uh, shoot it, so we're going to boil the clothes and serve it with a hikarika and uh, nuta, which is a sauce made with uh, like miso, egg yolk, and uh, spicy karashi, uh, Japanese hot mustard. Right. So, so this uh, concept is a weekly um Kind of user switched the name as Kapurintaro on Mondays. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are you planning to make it permanent and at a different location or? Um, I'd like to at some point. I don't know. I mean, only one restaurant's enough. So <laughs> it's enough a lot. Um, another thing I learned from my old boss was um, it takes a lot to make one restaurant good and, you know, more than twice as much to make two good. So uh, mm. we'll see what happens. Right. Well, sounds like a very historical lesson. <laughs> um, okay, so where can we find your updates online and on social media? Probably mostly through Instagram. So I'm uh, Mr. Underscore Rintaro. Okay. Uh, post photos there, not as often as I probably should. But, um, I have exciting things and I have time. I'll take a picture and put it up. Mm. Okay, we'll definitely follow that. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Sylvan. And uh, yeah, I look forward to tasting your dishes at uh, your restaurant, whether it's either Caporintero or actual uh, Yusakaya Vintero. Great. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenchon, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work, and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. 
As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Thank you for your support.